it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome in to the Guy Benson Show. So happy to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we are live on the air, and you can listen as we air every day. Lots of ways to do so at GuyBensonShow.com. Or if you miss any of the program, you can go back and catch it all on demand for free on our podcast, also available at GuyBensonShow.com or at FoxNewsPodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Many avenues to get you right here on the program. Really appreciate you listening every day. We are coming to you live from Tallahassee, Florida, which is the capital city of this state in the northern part of the state. It's beautiful here. Getting on the plane last night in D.C., it was 28 degrees leaving, and it was in the 80s here yesterday. So I'm doing the show indoors, but I'm sort of looking longingly out the window. Weather ain't bad for March. Now, why are we in Tallahassee? As we... Previewed yesterday, we are here for a major interview, which will be aired in its entirety coming up in our final hour. Before then, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, he will join us this hour with a look at Joe Biden, the president's new budget proposal, $5.8 trillion. Brian is a budget wonk. He'll break it down. President's already lying about it. In the next hour, Congressman Pat Fallon, a Republican of Texas, just back from Europe in the last few days. He also has a new op-ed out about the border. And there are rumors about the border crisis really picking up in Texas with the ending of Title 42. What does that mean? We will talk to Congressman Pat Fallon coming up in our next hour. And then, as now teased and we will build up to it all show, in our final hour, the 5 p.m. Eastern hour, For the first time on The Guy Benson Show, we will welcome Governor Ron DeSantis, the Republican chief executive of the third largest state in the country, who has a huge national profile, a growing national following, many people wondering if he has his eyes not only on re-election this year here in Florida, but on other prizes beyond. We will talk about everything. With Governor Ron DeSantis, I can tell you this. At the start of today's show, I just, what, maybe an hour and a half ago, got back to our broadcast location from the governor's mansion. They invited me into DeSantis's house. And I'll actually be back there this evening with a group of other right-leaning media people for an off-the-record dinner with the governor. But earlier today, it was just me with our equipment. We sat down at the governor's desk in the governor's mansion, and they gave me more than half an hour with Governor DeSantis. And no topics were off limits. I can tell you we got into 
what they've accomplished already here in Florida, COVID policy in schools, the governor's thoughts on his critics, including some fellow governors, elected Democrats, the media, of course, even the White House. He signed a bill into law yesterday, the parental rights bill related to LGBT issues that we've discussed on this show. People have been very curious how I feel about it. I've given my thoughts here and at townhall.com, where I work, and on my Twitter feed. I know what the governor's talking points are. I tried to get beyond the talking points, both the hysteria from opponents of the law, many of them, and some of the go-to talking points that we've heard from supporters of the law, including the governor. And we had probably the longest exchange on any single topic was on that one. But again, we had more than 30 minutes with him. And I'll tell you this as well. At the end of the interview, I tried to ask him a few questions not related to politics at all. Personal stuff. Because I think we kind of get this one-dimensional or two-dimensional figure of Ron DeSantis on our screens. As he gets a bunch of approbation from the right and attacks a lot of them ridiculous every day from the left. He's also a person with a family, a wife, three young children. So I tried to get a little bit into Ron DeSantis, the person, as well. And we will air that entire interview over the course of three segments, again, in our final hour today, just after 5 p.m. Eastern. The full interview will be up at GuyBensonShow.com later this evening. It'll be on the podcast, of course, for free. And I think he said a few things that could make some news. Certainly that are interesting to me that I just sort of made mental note as the conversation was flowing back and forth. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I didn't expect him to say that that way. I hadn't heard him say that before. That is all coming up exclusively here today for the majority of our final hour. Three entire segments. You do not want to miss it. So that's why we're in Tallahassee. Now, up in Washington, D.C., which is where we typically do the show, that's where we're based, has had yet another statement that he made walked back by his team. Before we get to the new one, I want to remind you, we played you this audio in our final hour yesterday, Peter Ducey, our Fox News colleague, asked the president about this propensity. Three times in three days, he said things on the European trip that his own aides almost immediately had to clean up, clarify, or walk back, which is sort of the the political term. Biden, sparring with Ducey, denied that any of those things happened. Here's that exchange in cut three. This was from yesterday at the White House. Are you worried that other leaders in the world are going to start to doubt that America is back if some of these big things that you say on the world stage keep getting walked back? What's getting walked back? It made it sound like, just in the last couple days, uh, it sounded like you told U.S. troops they were going to Ukraine. It sounded like you said it was possible the U.S. would use a chemical weapon, and it sounded like you were calling for regime change in Russia, and we know... None of the three occurred. None of the three occurred? None of the three. And as I pointed out yesterday, yes, all three of them occurred. They happened, they were on tape, we all saw it, and they were all walked back. 
Biden can pretend that empirical reality is not empirical reality, that the things that were said and done were not said or done, but the tape tells the story. He said none of the three occurred. Here they are, back to back to back, cut four. If chemical weapons were used in Ukraine, would that trigger a military response from NATO? It would be... It would trigger a response in kind. Ukrainian people have a lot of backbone. They have a lot of guts. And I'm sure you're observing it. And you're going to see when you're there. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. I'm sorry, that's just the reality. Right? The kids say, we brought receipts. This is not any special deep dive that we had to do here at the show with our whole team working to unearth secret audio files, he said all of these things with cameras rolling in a very high-profile series of settings. Then Peter Ducey asks him a completely fair question. Biden pushes back, what are you talking about? Ducey gives him the goods. Boom, boom, boom. Here they are. He says, nope, that never happened. And indeed, as we just played for you, they did. They happened within the last week. They were all recorded. I almost feel like I'm beating up on this guy. I don't want to be disrespectful to the president, but, I mean, you can't just play make-believe, especially in sort of this cranky way, when it's so obvious that you're wrong. Now, also yesterday, Biden, in clarifying one of the previous gaffes that had to be walked back, which is when he was talking to our troops stationed over in Europe. And he said, we'll play it for you in cut 23. He indicated that our troops were going to see the Ukrainians being really tough firsthand when you're there, meaning Ukraine. Here's what he said, cut 23. Also, the average citizen, look at how they're stepping up. Look at how they're stepping up. And you're going to see when you're there, some of you have been there, you're going to see, you're going to see women Young people standing, standing in the middle of the front of a damn tank, just saying, I'm not leaving. You're going to see it when you're there. So people understandably, not just Peter Ducey, a bunch of people said, wait, what does he mean by that? What do you mean our troops are going to see it for themselves when they're there in a reference to Ukraine? So Biden tried to explain what he really meant. This was yesterday in Cut 22, and then I'll have to give you the follow-up, which is yet another walk-back of the walk-back. Listen here. Mr. President. You, you, you interpret the language that way. I was talking to the troops. We are talking about helping train the troops in that are the, the Ukrainian troops that are in Poland. That's what the context. I sat there with those guys for a couple hours. That's what we talked about. So when you said you're going to see when you're there, you were not intending to I was referring to with beating with and talking with the uh, Ukrainian troops who were in Poland. Okay, so in that answer, still sparring a bit with Peter Ducey, he says, oh, I didn't mean to say, and you interpreted wrong that I was talking about them being in Ukraine. I was talking about their interactions, the Ukrainians, with our troops in Poland as we're training their troops who are in Poland. The direct quote was, we're talking about helping train the Ukrainian troops that are in Poland, end quote. 
And then Politico reports, this was last evening after we, were off, after we went off the air, White House denying that's what he meant. Saying, well, no, there are Ukrainian soldiers in Poland that interact with us, but we're not training them. There was a general who testified today on Capitol Hill, General Todd Walters, who's commander of the U.S. European Command and NATO's Supreme Allied Commander Europe. He appeared, this is Newsweek, to contradict President Biden during a Tuesday Senate Armed Services Committee meeting, that was today, saying the U.S. is not training Ukrainian troops in Poland. Quote, I do not believe we are in the process of currently training military forces from Ukraine in Poland. The general said in response to a question from Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. So in trying to explain what he meant when he talked to our troops over the weekend in Europe, Biden said what he meant was our troops were just interacting with Ukrainian soldiers were training in Poland. Then the White House said a few hours later, oh, that's not what he meant. We aren't doing that. And today, a top U.S. general said, confirmed, we are not doing that. Now, the question is, did Biden get this confused? Was he once again mischaracterizing what the United States is or is not doing in this case, prompting the White House cleanup and a top military official to correct the record? Or are we, in fact, training Ukrainians on Polish soil? And is that fact classified? And did Biden forget that the fact that he shared with the world that they're now denying was classified? I don't know. That's a plausible explanation. Him just getting the whole thing muddled while he walked back the walk back. Totally plausible option A. Totally plausible option B is someone told him in a classified setting, hey, we're doing this with Ukrainian soldiers. We're training them in Poland That is not for public consumption and maybe sort of the sifter in his brain that separates classified from unclassified, things that can be said publicly versus things that cannot. And, of course, the president has the right to declassify anything. So if he wants to make something public, he has the authority to do it in this context. But if he didn't mean to, if it was an accidental slip as he was trying to backfill another excuse, I mean, it's just, I used the term amateur hour yesterday, that's how it feels. Meanwhile, relatedly, I was intrigued last evening, and I had on the TV screen the five, while we were on the air, we have them on mute, and in the left-leaning chair yesterday on the five, on Fox News Channel, was Piers Morgan, who's a big international media personality. He's been here in the U.S. on CNN. He's been a huge name over in the U.K. for decades. He is now starting a Fox Nation show next month. So he was on The Five yesterday. He was asking fellow panelists, and they were asking him, sort of having this this whole back and forth about the gaffes, about the media covering the gaffes, and people trying to make excuses for the president and his misstatements and the cleanups. Here was Piers Morgan's observation last evening in Cut 12. What I find also about this, which is I think is really unsettling, the desperate ways that the Democrats and many of the quite liberal, skewed mainstream media go out of their way to try and defend this, go out of their way to try and portray this as commanding leadership, when the polls, as we just heard, 
of crashing to new lows, when confidence in him, in trust in President Biden, because of all these gaffes, is collapsing. It, they've got to get a grip of this. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't trust a word he says, yeah. mainly because he can't even remember saying it, then there's a problem. Yes. This guy is the leader of the free world. I think that's well said. And the word unsettling is exactly right. We've got a break. We're just getting started. We are in Tallahassee, Florida today and tomorrow. It's the Guy Benson Show. Ron DeSantis on the program later on. Much to get to. We're just getting started. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. So we were talking about walkbacks and contradictions. We'd also mentioned earlier in the week and even last week as well, Biden pretending that no one had ever said that the sanctions were supposed to deter Vladimir Putin. That's not what we're saying. We didn't say that. Sanctions never deter. And then it's like you can play a four-minute soundbite, just a montage of everyone from his vice president to his secretary of state on down saying exactly the opposite because that was their contention for weeks. So this one is less meaningful than that. And yet it's just kind of the gang that can't shoot straight yet again. Last week, a week ago, in fact, the deputy press secretary at the White House, Chris Meager, addressed reporters, was talking about how moved the president was watching the hearings of Katanji Brown-Jackson for the Supreme Court. Here was a week ago at the White House, cut 24. The president watched portions of Judge Jackson's hearing yesterday and today and is proud of the way she is showcasing her extraordinary qualifications, her experience, and her even-handedness. Her dedication to following the facts, the law, and our Constitution as an independent judge is clear. He was also moved by the grace and dignity she has shown, the deference to senators, and the level of detail she is offering, reinforcing the value of her experience, her intellect, and the strength of her character. He was proud. He was moved. As he watched, he was asked about this yesterday, the president himself. Here's what he said in Cut 20. And did you get any chance to watch much of the Judiciary Committee hearings? I didn't get a chance to see any of it, unfortunately. Um, didn't get to see any of it. <laughs> but he would have been moved, I'm sure. Ugh, it's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Welcome back. I'm Guy Benson. We're in Tallahassee, Florida today, also tomorrow. Coming up in the 5 o'clock hour Eastern Time, Governor Ron DeSantis will be our guest for most of the 5 o'clock hour. We are looking forward to that. With us now is Brian Riedel, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute 
a budget wonk and expert, worked for a long time on Capitol Hill. And he's here to discuss a very exciting subject, which is the president's budget. But it actually is exciting to me because I think it offers a glimpse into policy, let's say priorities, some pivots from the White House, and then also a whole blizzard of misleading statements and untruths from the president as he rolled this thing out just yesterday. Brian, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Guy. Thank you. So let's just start with the top-line number, which is a $5.8 trillion budget proposal from the president for the next fiscal year. Just put that in perspective. You know, during the Trump administration, I was critical of the president and Republicans on Capitol Hill for abandoning really almost any pretense of fiscal responsibility, dealing with deficits and debt, dealing with long-term debt and unfunded liabilities. They weren't as bad as the Democrats, but a lot of their tough talk from previous years in the Obama administration seemed to fall by the wayside when they were back in charge. Nevertheless, President Trump's last budget proposal that he got in and put before Congress before the pandemic hit was for $4.75 trillion, which was just a staggering amount, a record-setting amount for any president of any party, $4.75 trillion budget. That was right before he put that, you know, right before the pandemic hit. That was Trump. This, here we are in 2022, is Biden's proposal that is more than one that already shocking breathtaking number i think a lot of people just sort of like stenographers in the press just putting it oh five 5.8 trillion that's that's the new number i took a step back and saying that is a huge number even compared to the the massive unsustainable levels of spending before the pandemic 5.8 trillion is astounding unto itself is it not yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you're getting in the ballpark of about uh, $35,000 to $40,000 uh, uh, or more uh, per household. Actually getting close to about 50000 per household per year. It's growing so fast I can't stop. And, you know, and even in terms of the deficit, um, before the pandemic, Trump's deficit in 2019 was $984 billion, which was still way too high. The That's terrible. It's actually year, really terrible, like almost a trillion dollars in deficit, an annual deficit in 2019 when the economy was rolling during peacetime, a deficit of almost a trillion dollars is a terrible number in 2019. Just just to put a finer point on it. Yeah, and yet this year, in this year's uh, fiscal year, Biden is bragging about a deficit of $1.4 trillion and talking about how much better he is. It's 40% higher than it was the year before the pandemic. And Biden is correct that, well, it's lower than it was at the peak of the pandemic. Well, of course it's lower than it was at the peak of the pandemic because the, the pandemic spending expired on schedule. You don't measure yourself compared to a one-year anomaly. But, yeah, the, the deficit this year, it's going to be the third time ever we've had a trillion-dollar deficit. Over 10 years, the borrowing is going to be $14 trillion. And the real amazing thing about the president's budget is it's fake. It's completely fake because he left out the $2.5 trillion cost of Build Back Better. All 
the spending, all the taxes, the centerpiece of his tax and spending agenda, he just didn't include the numbers in his budget at all. Well, does that mean that he's bowing to reality and abandoning Build Back Better? No. He says that it would be improper to put it in the budget because it hasn't been enacted yet, which doesn't make any sense because the entire point of the budget proposal is to propose what the president wants to do. And in fact, he has hundreds of other proposals. Um, He has $2.5 trillion in tax hikes over 10 years. He has $1.5 trillion in spending hikes over 10 years. He saw fit to put all that in the budget. But the $2.5 trillion cost of Build Back Better, he simply put in a magic asterisk that said to be determined. Huh. Now, is that $2.5 trillion over how many years? Because I know that some people... Over 10, but really the number could be a lot higher, right? There have been independent analysts saying it was really closer to $5 trillion when you include it. The Congressional Budget Office said that if you take out the gimmicks, the fake expiration dates, it's about $5 trillion over 10 years. And again, it's remarkable. It's not like there's no proposal to put in the budget. The president has a full proposal. It's been scored. It's already passed the House. And so it's, it's really almost unprecedented for the president to not even include the centerpiece of his budget in his budget. Because, unless I'm wrong, he is still saying very actively, if somehow you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema had a huge change of heart and the Democrats could get their reconciliation bill over the finish line and get the thing passed, the House has already passed it. Pelosi's House has already passed it. He would sign it. Like, Build Back Better is still his active policy, Absolutely. right? So, so that would add, that would make, if you add, let's say, $500 billion, if you do the division, right, Ten years, five trillion. So that'd be five hundred billion a year in new spending. That would be on top of five point eight trillion. So we're well over six trillion at this point in his actual budget proposals. And here's the thing, Brian. I was, you know, reading coverage of this last night, and a lot of the headlines and the leads in newspapers like the Washington Post, they're like, oh, this is Uh, A pivot toward moderation, a pivot toward reality, a nod to reality, uh, with a real emphasis on deficit reduction. I'm like, what planet are we all living on here? And the president himself tweeted out, after my predecessor's fiscal mismanagement, we're reducing the Trump deficits and returning our fiscal house to order. Brian, as I said, I am not going to defend... Uh, the Trump administration and congressional Republicans and their fiscal management in terms of deficits and debt during the previous four years, but to conflate emergency spending and temporary huge deficits with Trump deficits and saying that because you're not going to try to keep all of the emergency stuff permanent, therefore it comes down just a little bit, you're reducing deficits and we're getting our house back in order. I mean, that's nowhere close to reality and only through an aggressive spin cycle from the white house would you have credulous reporters saying wow you know look look at this amazingly moderate budget that focuses on deficit reduction i mean it's just it's just bears no connection to actual reality yeah i mean the 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 people who are defending it haven't read it the deficit he is proposing this year is 40 percent higher than it was in uh, the final year before the pandemic. Um, In terms of it it being a moderate budget, 
there's two and a half trillion dollars in taxes that if you then add Build Back Better, it's about five trillion in taxes. If you include Build Back Better uh, without the expirations, there's about five to six trillion dollars in new spending over 10 years. In what world is that moderate? I mean, this blows away anything Barack Obama ever proposed. You know, Barack Obama would propose a trillion dollars over 10 years in new spending and new taxes. Biden, even without Build Back Better, has two and a half times as many tax hikes as, as, as Obama ever would propose. And that's not even counting the Build Back Better trillions. So this is one of the biggest tax and spend budgets ever proposed. And again, the idea that you're cutting the deficit well, it's the, it's the biggest. is 40% higher than it was before the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to get all of this, obviously, but this is his blueprint moving forward. I guess what you're hearing... The defenders who say this is more moderate is it doesn't include Build Back Better. So maybe he's kind of winking like, okay, that's not going to get passed. It also does increase the military budget, although at a slower pace than other things, a slower pace than inflation, for example. And then he does make a big show out of increasing funding to the police and, you know, law enforcement. And part of that, I think, is just, you know, politics trying to undo some of the huge damage done to his party by members of his party talking about defunding the police or repurposing police budgets for other reasons, which he, by the way, endorsed as a candidate in 2020, back when it was fashionable, sort of in the heat of that summer. He's like, oh, yes, that, that is something that we should do. And Kamala Harris was on board for that. Then they realized, oh, this is a total political loser. That brief moment, that mania passed, and now they've been desperate to say, oh, no, we're not defund the police. We're fund the police. So that, that's what they're trying to do in this budget. That, I guess, is what people are characterizing as more moderate here. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, I, I understand and I, I agree that that's what they're doing, although the, the, the justice funding he's proposing is a fraction of a percent of the budget. Uh, I mean, it, it's a couple hundred million dollars out of six trillion. So it's, it's pennies of pennies of, of a fraction. And so, I mean, where most of the money is going, you got a 10 percent increase in non-defense discretionary spending right on top of last year's 10 percent increase. You have huge new spending on uh, Pell Grants, which you and I know just leads colleges to raise tuition even faster. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's a lot of the same old trillions. And like I said, the, the numbers add up to about five and a half uh, uh, trillion if you include Build Back Better. By 2032, under the president's budget, the deficit is $1.8 trillion during peace and prosperity, and that's without Build Back Better. With Build Back Better... Uh, and, and extensions, you're looking at a deficit closer to about two and a half trillion dollars by 2032 under that. And budget. that's just one year. Like, and, and just to year. remind everyone, deficits are each year, right? Debt is what accumulates. The national debt is all of the deficits combined, and that's already totally run away and out of control. Annual deficits to have an annual deficit, even in the ballpark of one trillion dollars, to me, I mean, and this is, correct me if I'm wrong, Christian. Uh, This is, or Brian, rather, this is, we have record tax receipts coming into the government, record revenue coming into the government. It's not an issue of, oh, you know, the government's starved, where there's no tax money flowing in. There's record levels of tax money coming in from businesses, from families, from taxpayers. And yet they're talking about blowing this thing out, you know, deficits every year. 1.4 1.4 trillion, 1.8 trillion. If you add in Build Back Better, more than 2 trillion per year. 
I don't know how anyone can, with a straight face, Brian, defend the proposition that this is somehow a tax problem, uh, you know, a revenue problem as opposed to a spending problem and a huge one. Yeah, I mean, as the tax revenues last year were past 18% of the economy for the first time in 20 years. And in the president's budget, he would raise them even higher to nearly 20% of GDP, which would be the highest sustained level of taxes in American history. And again, that's even before Build Back Better's taxes. So under his budget, the highest sustained level of taxation in American history would still lead to deficits of $2 trillion a year and growing rapidly because spending is growing so much faster than even record receipts. You just can't keep up. Yeah, this stuff is not sustainable. It hasn't been for some time, and it's just like taking a house on fire and throwing just barrels of gasoline on top of it and, and patting yourself on the back for being a firefighter. I mean, that that is what this press conference was yesterday. It's what this budget is. I know it's not the most exciting topic, but uh, we have you, Brian, here to talk about this exciting topic because it actually really does matter. Now, I want to talk briefly about the tax increases because they're saying, oh, this is a wealth tax. It's a billionaire's tax. I know they've tried these types of things in Europe. It has failed miserably over there. It has been actually repealed in a lot of those places because it doesn't work and it drives away jobs. It drives away Revenue, it drives away prosperity. So they've, they've sampled this type of thing over there, and they've rejected it because it just doesn't work. But they've put that gimmick in here because it scratches a certain you know, populist itch and so you know, get the rich people and all the billionaires, although it goes well below uh, the billionaire mark. There's that. Then there's the promise that the president keeps making, including yesterday. He's been saying it since he was a candidate. He says it every few months at the very least that under his plans, no one making less than 400 grand a year would see one penny of tax increase. And we know, Brian, that that is not true. It wasn't true as a candidate based on his own tax proposal. The, the math didn't add up. But now every single House Democrat except one of them, but Pelosi's entire team, voted to pass Build Back Better, which explicitly, based on nonpartisan analyses, raises taxes on millions of middle-class people, also at the same time creating tax breaks for millionaires in blue states. They've all voted to make that law. Biden says he wants to sign that into law, and yet he continues this charade of, I don't know what else to call it other than lying, that his plan wouldn't raise taxes on middle-class or working-class people. They've already voted to do it explicitly under the president's own written-down plan. Well, note the theme here. There's a billionaire tax that actually starts with people at only one-tenth of that wealth, and then there's a 400000 and higher tax that actually starts at the lower and middle class. The theme is that the president promotes and labels a tax one thing and then hits people making one-tenth of whatever the threshold is. You know, in, in terms of the president's Build Back Better, the Tax Policy Center, which is a liberal organization, it's part of Brookings, said that if you, if you account for, for all the changes and all the impacts on families, the middle class would see $300 in additional taxes through 
the president's policies, mostly the corporate tax increases that get passed down to workers through higher prices, lower wages, and, and lower stock returns. So ultimately, the, according to Tax Policy Center, the middle class will ultimately be the ones paying an additional $300 a year for some of these policies. And so, yeah, it's, it's the same thing. It's, the president says he's going to raise taxes on one group, but, but then if you look at the fine print, it's people making one-tenth of that are actually included. Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He knows his numbers inside and out, which is why he was the perfect guest today to break down what the president is selling. Hopefully the Congress will not buy it. We can't come close to afford it, but this is how things work in Washington, and we want to keep them honest and bring you the actual math because math and reality still matter on The Guy Benson Show. Brian Riedel, always appreciate it. Thank you so much, Guy. We will step aside and come right back after this short break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show. Some disturbing news out of Israel, where the prime minister says his country has been gripped by, quote, a wave of murderous Arab terrorism following a third deadly shooting within a span of just a week. There are now 11 terror victims, Israelis killed within the last week. It's the largest number since 06 in a suicide bombing in Tel Aviv. And these are three separate incidents, all involving gunmen. The latest assailant has now been identified as a member of a terrorist organization And initially, he killed four people. That death toll of this particular shooting, the third of three so far, is up to five now, 11 in total. So our prayers are with the people of Israel as they face Islamist violence from extremists. And we are with the people of Israel on this show every step. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Hour two of three underway here on the Guy Benson Show. Our middle of three hours, three to six Eastern every weekday here on the Guy Benson Show. Always honored to have you along for the ride. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast free of charge every day. And if you can't listen to our next hour, you might want to go check out the podcast later on, on demand, no charge to you. Because we're here in Tallahassee, Florida, for a one-on-one sit-down interview with Governor Ron DeSantis. We conducted it earlier, just a few hours ago, at the governor's mansion. We touched on a whole host of topics. You're going to want to hear all of it, and it will take up most of our final hour coming up an hour from now. GuyBensonShow.com, just a reminder there. We'll post it there. It'll be on the free podcast. Lots of ways to listen. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour. The Dow with a big day on Wall Street, finishing up 338 points, closing at 35,294. With me now is Congressman Pat Fallon, a Republican from Texas, the 4th Congressional District in the Lone Star State. He's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. You can follow him on Twitter, at Rep. Pat Fallon. Congressman, good to have you here. Guys, thanks for having me on. 
Uh, my pleasure. I want to start with just a recap from your perspective of your recent trip to Europe. Obviously, there's a war on in Ukraine. A lot of our NATO allies are concerned about the designs of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. The U.S.-NATO alliance, uh, as important as it has been in many years right now, what did you see? What did you experience? What were your big takeaways from that trip? Well, Guy, we visited Poland, <clears throat> Romania, and Moldova. And there's some of the takeaways were the Polish people are amazing on, on several levels. One, the way they handled the humanitarian crisis. There's two million refugees from the Ukraine in Poland. There are no major refugee camps. They just have some processing centers. And the Polish people have opened up their homes to those two million people. That's the equivalent of America finding homes for 16 million folks in the side of three weeks. Uh, and, they, and the Poles hate wow. the Russians. They're fearful of them. And I love that for it. I love it because of that. They know the threat. 30 years ago, NATO didn't go to Poland. Poland came to NATO, as did a lot of other Eastern Bloc, former Eastern Bloc countries, because they knew um, they, and they feared the resurgent Russian bear. And it's exactly, unfortunately, what the world got. Moldova and Romania, the same thing as far as vis-a-vis the, -vis the, the humanitarian crisis and the refugees. The, um, the steadfastness uh, of the Romanians and, and the Polish people, <clears throat> they are so thankful that they're in NATO. And even the Moldovan prime minister, not a NATO country, only 2.7 million people. They've taken in 400,000 Ukrainian refugees. And we met with the prime minister and uh, met with her for about an hour and a half. And at the end of the meeting, she said, look this all in the eye. She speaks fluent English. And she said, please help us remain a member of the free world. And that's what's at stake here, not just for Moldova, but for Ukraine and Eastern Europe and really the world at large. And it was a very impactful trip. You mentioned refugees. You've also been speaking up about what we should be doing here in the United States in terms of admitting more Ukrainian refugees than we have so far allowed for under this administration. What's the number? I know they just increased it, didn't they? But it's still a paltry sum given the millions of people who are fleeing for their lives from that country due to the Russian invasion. What's your take on that, your position on that? Well, right now, the last figure I saw, Guy, was 100,000 Biden had uh, made an allotment for. And that is a drop in the bucket when you're talking about 10 million have been displaced, 6 million of them still in Ukraine, 4 million outside the Ukraine. And these are not, let's be very clear here, these are not economic migrants. These are war refugees due to no fault of their own. They're largely, men, uh, they're not men, it's women and children. They're just trying to find a safe haven for a brief amount of time. The overwhelming majority of the Ukrainian refugees intend to, and they plan on going back to their country once the Russians leave. Their country was invaded and occupied by an evil autocrat who's an enemy of the United States. And us showing our hearts and opening up our homes, particularly when Ukrainians have an overwhelmingly positive view of the United States, I think we can and should do more. Meanwhile, back on the home front, you represent a district in Texas, if I'm not mistaken, north and east of Dallas at Neck of the Woods. And you know, as well as anyone, that this immigration crisis, the border crisis from the Biden administration, has been very bad for more than a year. People are bracing for it to get worse. I saw our colleague here at Fox News, Bill Malugin, who covers the border. He's hearing from his sources, he tweeted this today, that the Title 42 expulsions could go away. That could be, you know, ceased as a policy within the next couple days. If that cessation occurs, as he's being told, and as we've gotten telegraphed from the Biden administration, it will be 
even harder for this administration that seems allergic to deportation to send people back to their uh, countries of origin or back across the U.S.-Mexico border. And the numbers that we've already seen, Congressman, in January and February are just stunning as we get closer to the spring weather where we know seasonally already it increases. You throw the Title 42 issue on top of it, and this just could be an explosion of a border crisis in the next few months alone. Uh, Your position on this as a, a member of the delegation from Texas, it's not just theoretical. It's not just a matter of national sovereignty. It's a matter of public safety and security in your state. This is something that is personal to border state citizens in particular. What's your read on what's happening already and what you're hearing about the fears of what could still come in the weeks and months ahead? Guy, you could teach a three-credit college course on what's going on down at the southern border. Uh, I mean, you could talk about it for months. The Because of Joe Biden's weakness and wokeness, he has made all 50 states border states. Uh, we are lacking th- with security. And if Americans aren't safe, then they're not free. And it's interesting to note that this crisis hasn't gone away. The, the national media, mainstream media, has failed to cover it over the last year. Correct. That's but it's right. just as bad today. Guy, you know this, because that's why you're doing God's work here on Earth. Because you're actually reporting the truth. It's as bad today as it was a year ago. It hasn't gotten any better. For the first time in our history, we've had 11 months in a row of over 150,000 illegal border crossings uh, per month. 11 months in a row. It's never happened before. Two million illegal border crossings in a calendar year. Never happened before. But and those Biden are just the encounters. That, that doesn't just, – just to jump yeah. in, just because I, I always want to underscore sure. this. Those are just the documented encounters with illegal border crossings. It does not count – the known so-called gotaways in the hundreds of thousands, and then the unknown number of gotaways on top of that. I mean, the, the numbers when you add up those three pools are just staggering. And I think to anyone who is anything other than a, a, an open border zealot, it has to be seen as unacceptable. Well, that's what the left has become. That's what the Democratic Party has become is, um, you know, they've been open border zealots. I mean, last last year, President Trump was in office. We had 185,000 deportations. In 2021, Biden's first year, it was cut in a, in a, by a third of 59,000. Although illegal border crossings have exploded, as you mentioned, Biden doesn't want to talk about the 100,000 deaths, American deaths, due to overdoses, and that's going to happen when you have 11,000 pounds of fentanyl seized at the southern border. That's just what was seized. We don't know how much got through. 200,000 pounds of methamphetamine or just under that. The drug cartels have a GDP of a small nation state, somewhere around $30 billion. They are controlling our southern border, not the federal government. Joe Biden has abdicated his responsibilities and his authorities. And it's now to the point where this is these are impeachable offenses because he is not enforcing laws on the book. He's ignoring them. And then he has judicial orders um, from the judiciary that say that, you know, in reinstitute the migrant protection protocol, the weight in Mexico policy. He drags his feet and doesn't do that. Uh, and it, at some point in time, when we get a majority of conservatives or a majority of patriots here in Congress, we need to act. Yeah, I mean, whatever's happening now is not acceptable. The point that you made is another important one. While the number of illegal immigrants coming into the country has just mushroomed and ballooned massively during this administration, the number of deportations has cratered by a huge percentage. So they're going in the in the wrong direction on both of those things. 
come on in. We're not going to deport you. Whole new categories of people who are immune from deportation, including people convicted of additional crimes. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of uh, people might call me a squish on immigration, on, on policy stuff that I've been open to, certainly in the past on legislation. But to me, none of that is relevant right now. That is all backburnered until the front burner problem is dealt with decisively. And unfortunately, it's not only being not dealt with, it's, it's getting worse and worse. Congressman, last question. We have less than a minute, and our guest is Pat Fallon of Texas, Republican congressman. The president put out his new budget propo- uh, proposal yesterday, $5.8 trillion and counting. Quickly, your thoughts on that. We are already a, uh, a, a debtor nation. We have a $30 trillion debt. These Democrats are spending money. Not, I, I, don't, I would say like drunken sailors guy, but that would be an insult to drunken sailors. They're spending money we do not have. They're making – and then what happens when you do that, by the way? You get inflation, the worst inflation we've had in 40 years, which is a tax yeah, it ties on in. all Americans on everything that we buy. All Joe Biden is doing in his policies is making Americans poorer. Real wages have collapsed, and this budget is only going to – And inflation is runaway right now. Congressman Pat Fallon, Republican, Texas, on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson on The Guy Benson Show from Tallahassee today. Governor Ron DeSantis coming up in our final hour. You don't want to miss that. Well, we've been covering this story now for a couple of weeks on and off. The huge kerfuffle at Yale Law School. And kerfuffle is sort of a funny-sounding word that maybe downplays the seriousness of what happened, which was a free speech event actually about the First Amendment that included speakers from across the spectrum, both ends, who were drowned out and harassed by a large group of Yale Law students who disrupted the event because they found one of the speakers to be objectionable and therefore they felt unsafe and all of the crazy woke stuff that we always hear about, the conflation of words with violence, it was all on display. And these were not sort of sniveling undergrads. These were sniveling law students at one of the most prestigious schools in the country and evincing Absolutely no appreciation or reverence for the First Amendment, the value of tolerance, toleration, a pluralistic society, dissent, differing viewpoints. They showed up to condemn and to censor and, of course, to disrupt. And one of the questions that have been raised by a number of people and critics Will the administration do anything about this at Yale Law? Well, now we finally have a statement from the dean of Yale Law that is at least somewhat decent, maybe belated, but here we go. Dear members of the community, Ms. Dean writes, as we return from spring recess, I want to reflect on the protests that occurred earlier this month at the law school. Shortly before break, a group of students protested the Federalist Society's decision to bring a speaker from the Alliance Defending Freedom to campus because of the organization's position on LGBTQ rights, including same-sex marriage and the treatment of transgender people. Under the university's free expression policy, student groups have every right to invite speakers to campus, and others have every right to voice opposition. Our commitment to free speech is clear and unwavering because unfettered debate is essential to our mission. We allow people to speak even when their speech is flatly inconsistent with our core values. 
In accordance with the university's free expression policy, which includes a three-warning protocol, those protesting exited the room after the first warning, and the event went forward. Had the protesters shut down the event, our course of action would have been straightforward. The offending students, without question, were subject to discipline. Although the students complied with the university policies inside the event, several students engaged in rude and insulting behavior as the event began. A number made excessive noise in our hallways that interfered with several events taking place, and some refused to listen to our staff. This behavior was unacceptable. At a minimum, it violated the norms of this law school. This is an institution of higher learning, not a town square, and no one should interfere with others' efforts to carry on activities on campus. Yale Law School is a professional school. This is not how lawyers interact. We are also a community that respects our faculty and staff who have devoted their lives to helping students. Professor Kate Stith, Dean Mike Thompson, and other members of the staff should not have been treated as they were. I expect far more from our students and want to state unequivocally that this cannot happen again. My administration will be in serious discussion with our students about our policies and norms for the rest of the semester. As dean, I am deeply committed to our free speech policies and the values they safeguard. I will protect free speech without fear or favor. I have waited to write you because it is our conversations as a community that matter most. And she talks about the need to have these conversations. The deeper issues, she continues, embedded in this event are not unique to Yale Law School. They plague our democracy and institutions across the country. Nonetheless, we will overcome these challenges because we must. Together, we will figure out how to nurture a thriving intellectual environment while maintaining a community of equality and mutual respect. It is harder than ever to find common ground. The stakes are high. The rights of cherished members of our own community are under attack, but it is essential that we keep this community together despite the many forces seeking to divide us. She says, I'm heartened that as we push forward, we build on an intellectual tradition that stretches back centuries. As dean, I am and will always remain unalterably committed to keeping that tradition vibrant and alive. This is from Heather Gherkin, the dean of Yale Law School. Now, there were maybe more elements of that letter that were coddling to the feelings and some of the hysterics that we saw from some of the students, but at least the dean condemned the excesses, the rudeness, the efforts to shout down and drown out, the disruption of that event and others, unequivocally and forcefully calling it unacceptable and saying that it cannot happen again, and they'll be talking to some of the students involved. That's all well and good. I'd rather have this than not. I'd rather see this strong statement of commitment to free speech than to have this whole event just pass by without mention from the administration at Yale Law School. But I want to know, are there any teeth to words like unacceptable? If it's really unacceptable, there need to be some consequences. Certainly, if anything like this should ever happen again, the consequences need to be swift or else these words mean absolutely nothing. So I actually hope that the Federalist Society at Yale holds another event with another controversial speaker and see if the children who disgraced themselves and embarrassed the university a few weeks ago will actually take this message to heart or whether it's just words. And if they push the boundaries again and try to interrupt free speech, 
and carry on like children who cannot be exposed to people or ideas that they disagree with, then the onus is on Yale to either follow through on their words and make them mean something or not. And that's up to them. And I guarantee you, judges and law firms, families, parents, prospective students, etc., will be watching. We certainly will here on The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Halfway through today's program. Still coming up in the next hour, Governor Ron DeSantis. One-on-one for three full segments. Looking forward to that. Stay tuned for it, please. In the meantime, someone sent me this story. and I tweeted about it a few days ago. I wanted to share it with you. It's a letter, an open letter to the NCAA Board of Governors written by and signed by dozens of women associated with the University of Arizona women's swimming team. And they just felt like they wanted to be heard on this whole issue about competition, biological sex, fairness in sports, and transgender swimmers like Leah Thomas. We've talked about that case a number of times on the show. What I liked about this letter was I think it really laid out quite clearly what the stakes are, how this affects female athletes, many of them, and it kind of encapsulates things in a very sensible, methodical way that's also respectful to transgender people and respectful to Leah Thomas, despite some of the really big concerns that these ladies have. I want to read it to you. Dear NCAA Board of Governors, they start out, Do we have a voice? That's its separate own paragraph, standalone. Do we have a voice? It's hard to express the anguish the women's swim community has experienced this past week watching the 2022 NCAA Swim and Dive Championships. On one hand, we feel we are witnessing irrevocable damage to a sport that has transformed our own identities for the better. On the other, we have reconnected with each other in sisterhood, after many busy years living our lives beyond the water's edge. We are grateful to the many women who have stood up publicly to speak up in protest of your policies, including UT's swim alumni who penned a thoughtful letter to their athletic director and inspired us to write our own from the University of Arizona alumni perspective. We have collected some of our own thoughts on paper and plead to swimming leadership at every level to take immediate action to protect our women's athletics. In 2008, USA Swimming Chief Chuck Wilgus was asked to comment about, quote, a culture of fair play regarding a female swimmer who had tested positive for a banned anabolic agent called clenbuterol. He claimed at the time, quote, within the culture of swimming, if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, we want to catch you, and throw you out of the sport. In other sports, it's about excuses and justifications and being innocent until you're proven guilty. End quote. According to the USADA website, that substance is prohibited in sport 
because it, quote, promotes muscle growth through anabolic properties. The Mayo Clinic reports the main anabolic steroid hormone produced by the body is testosterone and that it, quote, has anabolic effects promoting muscle building. In a little over a decade, USA Swimming, the leading organization of swimming in the world, has surrendered its firm stance on fair play. This has encouraged other organizations, such as the NCAA, to make accommodations for biological men who have had the benefits of testosterone throughout natural development and beyond. These are the women, many of them associated with the University of Arizona's female swim team, writing in this letter to the NCAA. I'm reading from it extensively here on The Guy Benson Show. They go on, according to Duke's Center for Sports Law and Policy, quote, there's an average 10 to 12 percent performance gap between elite males and elite females in sport. What advantage does testosterone have for natural-born men swimming specifically? This year in the 500 freestyle, the men's A standard qualifying time is 4.11.62. The women's A standard qualifying time was 4.35.76. That's a difference, they write, of 24.14 seconds. To put that into perspective, the male swimmer in the last seed going into the meet would still be two full laps ahead of his female counterpart in this event. This one example alone demonstrates the advantages a biologically male swimmer has over a female. Physiological advantages exist. Well, let's pause there for a second to underscore the number 24.14 seconds. In swimming, that is an eternity. In fact, let's just do it. Ready? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Still swimming. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. Still swimming. Seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. 21, 22, 23, 24. That's what someone's already done on the male side to the women finally finishing, just if you compare time to time. And these are sort of at the top levels, the top echelons of the sport. That is a really, really enormous amount of time. This letter continues. Looking back on another moment in swim history, in 2010, FINA banned the use of high-tech performance swimsuits as the, quote, shiny suit era saw records falling at an alarming rate due to a competitive advantage given to swimmers who had the suits available to them. This year, at the fastest short-course swim meet in the world, the body inside the suit is what raises our concern. The decisions of the NCAA this year hope to appease everyone by allowing Leah Thomas to compete directly with women. Instead, the NCAA has successfully failed everyone. A target was placed on the back of a trans athlete, subjecting this person to devastating national outcry and humiliation. I think that's kind of them to express concern for Leah Thomas's well-being in this. That's a classy move. It's also true. 
They point out that Leah Thomas's lone points for Penn this March catapulted a team into a top 20 program in the country after failing to score a single point last year. Additionally, women athletes competing in the meet were forced to swim in unfair direct competition, therefore eliminating all integrity of the entire championship meet. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX this year, these women write. From the birth of the NCAA in 1906 until 1972, women had to fight to earn the law that provided equal opportunities for women in sports. It took a male-to-female transgender person one year to take the Women's Swimming National Championship title. This is not equality. Women's standings, titles, records, and scholarships are suddenly at risk again. Opening the door to allowing natural-born men to acquire precious, life-altering financial aid packages, often split up between multiple women per team, defeats the very essence of the flagship legislation we are ironically celebrating this very year. Female-to-male transgender athletes do not have the same opportunities as their male-to-female counterparts. So now they're making a distinction between people who are transitioning in opposite directions. They are heavily disadvantaged when it comes to earning a spot on the team they identify with due to strength and speed differences between gender categories. This was represented this year in the 100 freestyle by Yale's Isaac Hennig, a transgender male competing at the women's championship. This swimmer placed fifth in that event. Hennig's time of 47.52 earned the swimmer an All-American award and added 13.5 points to Yale's team score. Had Hennig chosen to swim at the men's competition, however, keep in mind this is someone now living his life as a man, identifying as a man, born female, transgender male, still swam against women this year. If he had swam against men, he identifies as a man, this letter points out, the same time would have failed to even reach the men's A qualifying time of 41.71 by almost six seconds, dashing the whisper of a chance this swimmer would even step up to the block. Think about that. This female-to-male transitioned swimmer, or transitioning swimmer, who identifies as a male, was still allowed to swim against females. And he, using his preferred pronoun, he came in fifth place as a male at the women's event. If he had competed as a male against men, he wouldn't have even qualified for the event, let alone being an All-American performer. The ladies at the University of Arizona's women's swimming program and alumni, they continue in this letter to the NCAA, quote, there were many options the NCAA could have implemented to create a fair environment for women competitors. A trans athlete could compete in the meet that aligns with birth gender, as Hennig did, At the championship level, there are 10 lanes available in the pool, while only eight swimmers compete per heat. Therefore, a trans athlete could have been added to any finals heat, in addition to the 16 women who qualified without pushing any of the deserving women out of the finals, such as Virginia Tech's Rika Gregory, who personally spoke out about the inequality she was subjected to in being shut out of the finals. 
trans-specific heats with separate awards and categories and scoring is another alternative. The NCAA could have implemented the more stringent USA swimming guidelines at the very least. Moving forward, trans-swim meets could be organized and built into a new category of athletic competition similar to the Paralympic or Special Olympic platforms to continue to widen the umbrella of inclusion in athletics. So here the women are saying, we don't want to shut out trans people from competition. We don't want to say, you can't swim, you can't be in our sport. But given the physiological and biological differences and advantages and all these dynamics at play, they are suggesting, and they might be imperfect suggestions, but at least they're trying to offer suggestions and alternatives where people can compete, they can feel valued, they can be part of the sport without changing the essence of elements of the sport, in this case, women's competition. And as I suggested there, it's not like you have to sign on to any of the ideas that they raise. At least they tried. And I know the NCAA is moving toward a change in their policy already because of the outrage over what happened this year with Leah Thomas unfairly winning the NCAA championship. A lot of people say that she stole it. I tend to agree with that. Now, she was playing within the rules of the NCAA, but that doesn't make the rules fair. And it doesn't take a huge asterisk away from that championship in the books of many people, including myself. Here's how this letter concludes. We are writing this letter to the NCAA, who has a president at the helm responsible for cutting both the University of Washington swim programs in 2009. Mr. Emmert stood firmly behind this decision as, quote, the right ones for us. The NCAA Board of Governors is predominantly men. Of the 65 athletic directors in the Power Five, only five are women. At the University of Arizona, our athletics director, associate AD for diversity, and senior women's advocate have remained silent on this issue, unfolding over the course of the entire season. These revelations and disparities alarm us when it seems there was no urgency in skillfully and educationally addressing how the scientific and biological differences may impact women's competitions. Do we have a voice, they ask again. The people responsible for protecting women's swimming should swiftly rectify the guidelines. The women from the University of Arizona will not quietly stand down while our victories and accomplishments float away. We are eager and willing to discuss directly with the NCAA potential steps it can implement to create new solutions for the expanding athletic family. Please contact us with your next steps toward a fairer future. Respectfully, the women of Arizona swimming and diving. And then dozens of them have attached their names to this letter. Now, you can agree with every word of what they wrote. You can disagree. You can think that they weren't harsh enough. You could think that they were too harsh and maybe object to some of their terminology. But I think this was a good-faith, thoughtful effort to address a profound, glaring unfairness in athletics by women, about women. And they did so, I think, quite well. And look, we have to be able to discuss these things as a country. 
tricky and thorny issues that are going to sometimes rile people up and even hurt feelings. If we can't have a conversation that allows for this type of discourse that I just described and read for you, then we're lost. This is absolutely fair-minded, totally inbounds discourse in this debate. And anyone who would try to silence or shame these women for speaking out as women on behalf of things that they really care about, I think is trying to prevent an actual conversation from happening. And I don't think that we should resolve cultural questions by bullying a bunch of people, I would say a majority of people on this issue, into silence for fear that they'll be labeled something like a bigot. This did not read as the work of bigotry to me at all. And for that reason, I wanted to share it with you because these are women with skin in the game. They poured their life into their swim careers, probably starting at a very age, all those early mornings, driving to and from swim meets, working their tails off, and then seeing that all threatened by unfairness. They have every right to speak out, and I think they use their platform responsibly. With that, we will step aside. We will take a break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we have been promoting this now for the last day or so that I'm here in Tallahassee, Florida to meet with an interview the governor down here, Ron DeSantis, who has come up many times on this program, on my Twitter feed at Guy P. Benson, in my writing at townhall.com. And for the first time, I will be interviewing DeSantis today. I did so earlier at the governor's mansion, and it was substantive. We got into a lot of different topics, including the bill that he signed into law just yesterday on parental rights and education, LGBT issues. It has touched off a firestorm. I asked him about it. You know that I support elements of it, don't support other elements of it, and we had a back and forth on that. You will hear that. You will hear his conversation about and how he thinks about his political future, what he's trying to achieve here in Florida, what they've already achieved in this state. Some news in this state about a freshly filed lawsuit from the state of Florida against the Biden administration and the changing face of the electorate in the Sunshine State, which has gotten a lot more Republican in a very short period of time. How is that happening? Why is that happening? Plus, the governor on his many critics in the media and in politics, we get into everything coming up in the next hour. My exclusive one-on-one sit-down, face-to-face at the governor's mansion with Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. We are in Tallahassee, Florida, today and tomorrow, then on to Miami after that. Very happy to be down here in the Sunshine State. 
GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. We also put significant interviews up on the website, and we have one of those coming your way this hour. GuyBensonShow.com, although you're going to want to stay tuned right now. Because in this happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, TheLongDrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, we welcome for the very first time onto The Guy Benson Show someone that we've talked about quite a lot because he takes slings and arrows from the left, from the news media, from the Democratic Party, that whole coalition, seemingly every hour of every day. And we've defended him when we think he's right, when he's being treated unfairly. But he is perfectly capable, of course, of defending himself, which is how he has built the approval rating and the standing that he has here in Florida, now with a national profile as well. Earlier this afternoon, I went to the governor's mansion for a one-on-one sit-down at the governor's desk. We had a lot to discuss, and boy, did we. Here's my conversation with the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. We are here at the governor's mansion in Tallahassee, Florida. I am delighted to welcome to the show Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican here in the Sunshine State. And some big breaking news today, your administration is suing the Biden administration over these continued mask rules on airplanes, for example. Talk about the thought process behind this and Florida's standing in this lawsuit. Sure. Well, first, welcome to the governor's mansion. Good to have you you here. So. You know, this is a, a matter of principle. They, they extended into April for no good reason. You have Fauci out there saying restrictions could re- be reimposed. And so some people say, well, he may just let it go out in April, but I think they could definitely bring it back. So the issue is, is this an overstep of government authority or not? And so our attorney general's done a great job. You know, she filed the lawsuit today. And so we're standing behind that. I'm surprised that courts haven't, upheld, uh, haven't struck it down by now. But clearly at this point, I don't even think it has a rational basis uh, given where, where we are as a society. So um, I think we've been leading on pushing back against Biden's overreach on all fronts, you know, not just this, the vax mandates, the border, all those things. And I think that's what people want to see, because I think Biden is really out of control. He's clearly not in command uh, of, of the White House and um, and he's expanding government in ways that I think will be dangerous. So you won the governor's mansion in 2018. It was a blue wave year. You squeaked through at 0.4 percent that victory margin. And at the time, registered Democrats in this state outnumbered Republicans by hundreds of thousands. Almost 300,000. That has changed dramatically, and there was news today on that front. This is like a sea change, one might call it, in Florida. Tell us about this. Sure. So we were down almost 300,000 in 2018 when I got elected. Today, we can announce that Florida Republicans now outnumber Democrats by over 100,000 registrants. So you're looking at close to a 400,000 registration swing. And the thing is, is I thought we could catch them by my election at the end of this year in November. We caught them in November of 2021. And so then I'm like, man, maybe we'll be 50 to 100,000 up by the election. We're already 100. So at this pace, we could be 200 to 250,000 registrants ahead. And I think here's, here's why it matters for elections in Florida. Midterm elections, for sure, but even presidential, registered Republicans turn out at higher rates than registered Democrats. And then a Republican like me, I'm going to get a higher percentage of registered Republicans than the Democrat will get of registered Democrats. You know, we still have legacy Democrats who are who are pretty conservative. And so um, functionally, it used to be Democrats outnumbered us. 
we had a turnout advantage, and then you'd kind of fight in the middle. That was why Florida was really a swing state. Well, now we have a, we're building a big registration advantage and the turnout advantage. And then I think this when is you're gonna, leading among independents as well. Exactly, this is going to be a red year. So I think obviously I will. I think I'll win independence big because of the job we did of governor. But I think all Republicans are going to win independence because I think they're rebelling against Brandon, and I think that they're going to want to basically show their frustration and vote for Republicans. What counts as a blowout in this state? Six points? Oh, who knows? I mean, you know, look, I think it's Florida's a tough state. It's always a tough state to kind of get your fit because there's so many moving parts. And we've always been a transient state. But I think now being able to capture such a rapid change, and it is an ideological migration that is skewing very heavily to Republicans. Like we don't really know. So we don't really know what the electorate's going to look like. I, my guess would be whatever kind of the public polling is going into the election, you can add a couple points to the Republicans' total mind. And I think other Republicans, because I think it's going to be hard for them to capture uh, what all these new registrants mean in terms of the turnout and all the things that go into modeling an electorate. Because sometimes you hear Republicans and conservatives worried about people leaving Illinois and California, New York and New Jersey, moving to other places and then voting the same way and turning places like Arizona purple, Colorado blue. Sounds like the opposite effect is happening here. This is getting redder in Florida. I think so. And I think part of it is we've always had lower taxes. So we've always had migration from that. The Northeasterners would come, you know, a lot of Democrats, a lot of Republicans. The Midwesterners are generally uh, pretty conservative. But then with COVID, you had people that were fleeing COVID lockdowns. They had had enough on that. And then you had the Floyd riots and the defund the police. And a lot of families were like, look, I need to live in a state that's a law and order state. So the number of people I run into from like Washington State or Minnesota who say one of the breaking points for them was the fact that crime was going through the roof. And here I am. I was like one of the only governors backing law enforcement even in the summer of 2020. So I think there's a number of factors. And then, quite frankly, the media has helped us with this because the corporate press will always try to paint Florida as like the worst place ever. The only people that works with are the, are the leftists who actually believe the corporate narratives. Nobody else in America believes it anymore, especially conservatives. So a conservative in, in, in Wisconsin is going to say, oh, well, hell, CNN's attacking the governor of Florida. He must be doing a good job. And then they are more interested in visiting and ultimately moving it's here. It's like in-kind contributions it's from the mainstream media every day with you. Now, you mentioned Fauci a few minutes ago. And one of the mottos or catchphrases that you have here that conservatives like, don't Fauci my Florida. A lot of those same conservatives think – Please do Florida, my America. <laughs> is this state, is your leadership in this state a model, do you think, for other Republicans around the country at the state level and maybe nationally? Well, I certainly think we've been willing to lead with purpose and conviction without worrying about whether it was safe to lead or not. Like, I have not conducted a single poll since I've been governor. I just do what I think is right. Focus and groups? Never, never, not once. Now, I'm going to have to start polling the horse race when I get into the, the election. But like but on governing decisions, you're not polling? I have not, not, I've not done a single poll. So how do you make these decisions? Then? I make them based off the facts, the data, and my convictions. And my view is like, you know, if I polled you and like 10 of your friends on an issue, that's a static analysis. That doesn't tell me that if I set a vision and I execute the vision, then where will you guys come out? So I can like move you people. Like you moving I'm moving people. I'm showing them that this is how a state should be governed. So I think what we've been willing to do is, you know, we do not let corporate media trim our sales. We're willing to stand up against woke corporations, which, quite frankly, a lot of Republicans uh, have been more corporate Republicans that defer to some of these corporations. Look, I, I want a limited government. I want a free enterprise economy. But when these big corporations are using their economic power 
to try to impose leftist ideologies, like in my state, we fight back on that. Um, and then I think we've been strong at fighting back against Biden. So I think there's a lot of those things. It's also interesting, you know, we just had a cabinet meeting today, so we had a report about Florida's finances. You know, we have we have 18 billion dollars in debt. We've reduced the debt uh, by probably 20, 25 percent since I've been governor. So out of 110, 105 billion dollar budget annually, our debt is only 18 billion. You contrast that with the federal government. You know, Biden just put out a five point eight trillion dollar budget, but there's 30 trillion. Right. In debt. And so I think we've shown we have the lowest per capita tax burden in the country. Um, We have no state income tax, but. Uh, we meet all the needs. I just did a big increase of pay for teachers, the biggest in Florida history. We gave $1,000 bonuses to all cops and firefighters for the second year in a row. We're doing a lot for our water resources to help our fishermen, our boaters, and our everglades. So we're meeting the challenges that we have because we're really creating a virtuous cycle. Good economic conditions attract more people. We expand the economic base, whereas these blue states, I think they create a vicious cycle. They tax and regulate, so they repel people to leave their state. The base shrinks, so they got to do it again mm-hmm. to try to square the circle, and you just can't have it. So states like Illinois and New York, they are in a, in a tailspin, and they're not probably going to be willing to change their policies, but they would have well, to change the policies. Also had their schools closed for more than a year in those yeah. places. You made a decision last school year to bring the schools back open. Was that the most consequential decision you've made as governor so far? I think ultimately it will be, because when I did this, was like June of 2020, and the data was very clear, just to be honest. I mean, it wasn't a difficult decision right. in terms Actual of substance. Science. Yeah, if you looked at the science, if you looked at places in Europe that had had schools open, if you looked at the fact that kids were at such low risk of COVID and really weren't prime drivers of transmission, there was no basis to say kids should not be in school. So substantively, if you followed the data, that's where you would have come out. However, politically and with the media, I mean, they thought this was the worst thing ever. A lot of parents were scared because CNN is telling them, you know, little Johnny may end up dying of COVID if he goes to first grade. So we we had a plan. We executed it. I got a diverse state. I've got a lot of liberal school districts. I mean, most of them are conservative, but I got some. We got all the school districts on board. We structured it in a way that incentivized them to have five days a week. We gave parents the right initially to say, look, if you're more comfortable with remote, you can do it. But that's the parent's choice. The school can't lock the kid out. And so having the kids in, letting them play sports, letting them do activities, letting them do all that, um, had we not done that, uh, the problems that would have developed, I think, would have been problems that we would have, uh, be seen by now. But there are problems that if you and I talk five years from now, we would be seeing those problems. So we were able to really stand for the people who didn't have much of a voice. Uh, and I think we I mean, there's a lot of decisions we've been vindicated on. But that one, I was opposed. The teachers union sued me. We beat them. All the Democrats were opposed. The media is opposed. No one will admit that they oppose me to this day. They will all act like they supported having the schools open. So that tells you when you're right. One of your critics is a fellow governor. I saw a recent interview with Gavin Newsom out in California, and he went out of his way in an interview to come after you. He said that you're a performance artist. He said, quote, I do not look for inspiration to that particular governor, not on the pandemic, not on other policy, including the absurdity that was his woke initiative and the laughability around stopping something that doesn't exist, critical race theory. That's his quote. I don't think it's a coincidence that he's attacking you. What's your response to that from Newsom? Well, first, I would say, 
how many people are moving from his state fleeing to come to mine for freedom versus vice versa? And I guarantee you, we win in the net in migration. People are leaving California in numbers we've never seen because of his failed policies. And here's what I'd say about the pandemic. If you look at um, you know, the, the COVID mortality, people point out California has less per capita mortality than Florida, which is true. They're also the second youngest state. So if you adjust by age, we're one of the oldest states. We're very similar. However, this is where I think his leadership has been terrible. If you look at excess mortality, California's had a higher percentage of excess mortality since COVID started than Florida. So that includes COVID, but it's not limited. So what Is are those? That lockdown deaths? Those are lockdown deaths. Absolutely. Those are deaths that his policies have caused, driving people to despair, drug addiction, lack of opportunities. And so um, there's people vote with their feet. You know, you, you hear a lot of people like him. How many other governors have said the same thing he does? Then they end up down in Palm Beach or Miami the first chance they get. You know, you have these The con- DGA, the Democratic Governors they Association, all come. So had the, their event here. So what I like to say is people posture politically and they do these talking points, but how they actually act really tells the story. And when people vote with their feet, yes, there's a lot of Californians who like what we're doing who are coming, but even the ones that posture against Florida – typically find their way here. And so I think that uh, the proof's in the pudding when it comes to that. The slings and arrows from Democratic politicians, from the national media, from the White House. I mean, you have been called out from the podium by the president himself. My conclusion is they see you as a threat to their power. Are they right to see you as a threat nationally? Well, look, I mean, I think if you look at what we've done to fight back against uh, Brandon so far, you know, we succeed. I mean, the, 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 diff- the contrast between a doddering, uh, you know, quasi-senile president who has to have his press team clean up his remarks after every time he opens his mouth versus somebody like me who's out there. I'm very direct. I say what I mean. I mean what I say. I lead and I get things done. You know, they understand that people view Florida as really being the leader of our country in many respects. We're really leading the free world in many. I mean, I have people from Canada that will come here that will write into me, Australia, Europe, and they say, we look to Florida as the new citadel of freedom. They're not looking to Joe Biden for that because they know that he's just not not capable of producing the type of leadership that they do. But I absolutely think from the time COVID hit, you know, I think the media wanted to, they wanted to use it to defeat Trump in 2020, you know, but they've tried to use it um, against me in any way they can. And then now that we're on to other issues, uh, they're always trying to find a way to attack me and attack Florida. Um, and I do think it's because I'm able to expose them. I'm able to show people that the emperor has no clothes. And they're not used to that. I mean, they're used to Republicans that will roll over for the left. And I just don't do that. I stand my ground. And we will pick up on that exact theme when we come back. My exclusive one-on-one discussion with Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida at the governor's mansion continues after this break. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From Tallahassee, Florida, it's The Guy Benson Show. We now continue with my conversation with Governor Ron DeSantis. So let's talk about something that you did yesterday in this state. You signed into law this parental rights and education bill. It was hugely controversial in the media. It got a lot of national attention. I have had so many people bombarding me about this because I'm gay I'm conservative, and I'm not subtle about the fact that overall I support what you've been doing down here in Florida. So, of course, we're going to talk about this. Just so you know where I'm coming from, the audience knows already. I've written about it. I've talked about it. I actually read the bill, a novel concept, seven pages, pretty easy. I think that the moniker Don't Say Gay is a misnomer. 
it is biased and lazy for the media to adopt it. It's an activist slogan that does not reflect what's actually in the law, number one. Number two, that K through three provision that you talk about all the time, I think it's unobjectionable. I think it's common sense, and the polls are bearing that out. People, parents, Americans, Floridians support it. I do as well. I have two concerns about the law, and I'm just curious to get your responses to them. Number one, when you get past the K through three verbiage, literally in that same sentence, it also bars classroom instruction on these types of issues, sexual identity, gender identity, that are, quote, not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate at other grade levels. That language strikes me as vague and subjective. Who gets to decide what is age appropriate later on? Like in your mind, when would it become appropriate? Middle school, high school? So it'll be, it'll, it'll be a combination between the State Board of Education and the local school boards. Um, and I think that you may see, uh, you know, some parts of the state, you know, come to a little bit different conclusions depending on, you know, the years on some of that stuff. Uh, but look, at the end of the day, I mean, I think that the, the reason this became an issue because when this first became an issue, you know, I wasn't even aware of some of the stuff that's going on. Uh, but, but with this transgender and the gender identity, there is an, an effort to try to tell people, well, you know, you may not really be a boy. You may be a girl. And I think that's totally inappropriate in the school system. I mean, you know, um, we need to focus on the normal things. And so I think that's really the genesis of this. We had a lady yesterday who uh, talked about her experience. Now, her daughter was a little older. Her daughter was in middle school here in Leon County. And she was in school, and the school administrators took it upon themselves to, quote, transition her to a boy. They even gave her a boy's name. They never got the parents' consent, and they never got the parents' permission. So the curriculum issue, I think, is something that is important. Um, and you know, one, I showed the thing of the gender-bred man they created where they're trying to say, oh, you know, not really a boy, not really a girl. Um, but the, and that's clearly designed for younger kids. Very younger kids. But I think that the, 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 the issue that I think is, is, a, is what role does the parent have? I mean, if a school is doing something as drastic as trying to change somebody's view of their own gender, does the parent not have a right to know that that's going on in school? Right, it's, and, I mean, it's a fair question and it's a fair point. We're up on a break, but that exchange wasn't over. We'll play the rest of it on the other side of this break, plus much more to get to, and we will do so next with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Tallahassee, Florida, where earlier today I spoke with Governor Ron DeSantis at length in his office. When we left off, he and I were chatting about the controversial parental rights and education bill that he signed into law just yesterday. Our back and forth was substantive, it was respectful, and it wasn't done. Here's the rest of it before we move on to a variety of additional topics as well. Listen. The second concern that I had about it is, because I read these paragraphs in the law several times trying to make heads or tails of it. I talked to a couple lawyers, conservative and liberal, and they said, depending on these could maybe be decided by lawsuits, but depending on how you read and apply some of this stuff, could it be interpreted as a requirement for schools? Let's say a high school student is struggling with coming out, and he decides to confide in a trusted teacher, a trusted counselor, let's say, say, hey, I'm struggling, I'm not sure what to make of this. I don't want to tell my parents yet. Would the school then have to disclose that confidential conversation to a family? Is that a legitimate concern 
under this law because having gone through the process myself, it's it's hard, right? And having those discussions in confidence with someone that you can trust without it necessarily being required to go somewhere is vital for young LGBT people. And my concern is if they feel like this law would require, Florida would require schools to, based on the mental well-being or the emotional well-being, which is how it's written in the law, it's kind of vague, if they're going to be required to tell families, those conversations might get bottled up. They may not happen, and that could be harmful. I'm just curious your perspective right. on so, that. So, uh, for, so for one, the um, before you get to that point, uh, classroom instruction, sometimes people say, like, can you even say something in class? That's not what it is. It's what's the curriculum on that part. Instruction. Second, yeah, yeah. Second part of that is it needs to be some type of service that's provided to, in terms of a medical uh, service. And so, you know, when you're dealing with things like in California, you know, they had a girl who the school was administering hormones to, and she was depressed and they should have treated the depression. They were trying to give her hormones. So she ended up committing suicide. The wife is, is or the, the mother's now suing. So I think it's if they're doing something that is just like if you took your kid to a doctor. You so know, it's treatment, not a conversation. Right, exactly. Okay, I, I, think, I, a, I think there needs to be some service that's rendered in terms of a medical service that's that a would, very important where, where a parent would have clearly the right to be informed and to, to object. And just think about it. I mean, bef before all this, like people have conversations all the time. I mean, that's never really been the issue that's triggered this. I think the issue that's triggered this is you have kids that are going in and they're now being changed in terms of their their gender identity. They're they're being told, and it's it's odd because the so people so just to clarify, if, if a high school student came to his teacher that he really trusts, had him for several years, and said, "Hey, I'm having this issue. I might be gay. I'm not really sure." It is not your position that under this law that conversation would need not to be... unless they're getting a medical service. Okay. Now, you mentioned woke corporations a short while back. Let's talk about Disney because it's a huge employer in this state. People associate Disney with Florida for all the obvious reasons. I think I made my pilgrimage in fifth grade down to Orlando. I saw the statement that they put out yesterday, ripping the bill, ripping you indirectly for signing into law, saying that they're going to be uh, fighting to take it off the books moving forward. Did you have conversations with the higher-ups at Disney about this on the substance, and did they communicate to you whether they, let's say, oppose that K-3 through component? Because this is a company that caters to overwhelmingly parents and young children. Are they against the K-3 through thing that the majority of the American people support? So, so here's, I think, why this statement was totally outrageous. I mean, for two reasons. One, they said it should have never been passed in the first place. I talked to our Speaker of the House after that statement came out. He said they never contacted him while they were working, while, they, while I was moving through the House of Representatives in Florida. They didn't say anything about it. I mean, they could have called them and said that they had problems with it. They didn't do it. And so to say it should have never been law in the first place, they were not even engaged at those critical processes. And so they're responding to, I would say, left-wing activists and their view of it rather than the actual substance of it. Secondly, for them to say that they're going to work to repeal substantive rights of parents because it's one thing if you're taking a political position about you know don't say gay you know you can't say the word we know that's not in the bill but they would not even close. they would they would uh be targeting provisions that provide parents substantive protections and so i think they overstepped their bounds with that statement they do not run this state i'm not going to let our state be hijacked by a bunch of california corporate executives and the fact of the matter is i think they think that they whatever they want in florida they get 
That may have been true in the past. That is not true now. Um, and we're going to govern the state based on the best interests of the people of Florida, not what any corporation, uh, but particularly that corporation, is demanding. Got to ask you this, too. You must be probably prodded and prompted every day by someone asking about your ambitions beyond 2022. And I know that the goal of you and your campaign right now is to win a big reelection in Florida. You seem to be on track to do that. I'm not going to ask you, look, if you want to announce you're running for president, (laughs) by all means, do it right here, right now. I'm not going to ask you that question directly. I'm going to ask you this instead. When you hear that buzz, directly or indirectly, how does that play into your thinking? Do you just kind of like put it in a box and set it aside till next year or something? Is it something that, you know, sometimes you, you daydream about? What's your thought process? Because no one ever asked me to run for president, so I don't know how I would think about it. But if people were asking me all the time, I don't know how I would manage that internally. I'm just curious how you do. Well, I mean, a couple of things. One is, um, you know, people have this merchandise with like 24. It's not my merchandise. Just so you know, that's totally organic. Okay. They're doing it. <laughs> people will come up to me with this on and they will talk about 2024. The number one response I have to them in Florida is, you know, I'm running in 2022. Right. And honestly, some of them don't. Um, and so we're going to make sure we educate everyone you know, that we've got a really important election, you know, in 2022. But here's the thing. I've never been to Iowa in my life. I've never been to New Hampshire. I think I may have been there in my 20s. I'm just doing my job. And so I'm not doing anything differently uh, than I would do, whether people were buzzing about me or not. Um, I'm trying to do the best I can for the people I represent. I'm fulfilling my campaign promises, and I'm willing to make tough decisions and lead. And so that has caused people uh, to recognize me and view me uh, as a leader, but it's not because I'm out there uh, parading around or doing anything of that. So, so I appreciate when people look. I mean, I'll get I get letters into my office um, every day from people around the country, you know, just saying, you know, we wish the country could be more like Florida. We'd love to be able, you know, to to to, to see you run sometimes. At the same time, you know. I've got a wife that, that's, that's uh, you know, successfully battling breast cancer. I've got a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and i got a, the, the best state in the country right now to do. So I have my hands full, so I spend really zero time thinking about it except when people come up to me. And they're all very well-intentioned. I mean, they all really you know, mean well. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, it's really neither here nor there for me. Last political question before a quick lightning round on non-political stuff. You have a constituent in Florida. He lives, I believe, in Palm Beach. Uh, People have heard of him. He was the president for a while there for four years. He's been hinting very heavily that he wants to run again. If he were to run again, should he be a heavy front runner for the Republicans by virtue of his previous position, or should it be a wide open field? Well, look, I I, I saw some news that he made a hole in one the other day at yes. his course, so I just want to congratulate him. Yeah, I've been able he to play. Very excited about I've it. been able to play golf with him over the years, and you know he's got a very good game, and, and he's a good player. And so, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see kind of how how all the how all the dust settles on this. What I tell people, you know, with me in Florida is, um, you know, I plan on being the nominee. Our, our filing hasn't happened yet. And I think I've earned it. But you know what? I mean, if someone wants to run against me, they can. I mean, I have to earn it every step of the way. I've got in to the earn, primary here. I've got to earn it. And then I've got to earn the general election. That's just the reality. Although the Republican Party of Florida did inf- officially endorse me. I don't know what that means, but um, <laughs> I think someone could still run, but hopefully they won't run. So um, but um, sounds but, like one step at a time is the answer. Here. Yeah, I think so. All right. Rapid fire stuff. A lot of Floridians in a certain area of your state were probably pretty thrilled and shocked when. Tom Brady 
unannounced, right? He's like, never mind, I'm coming back. You a Brady guy? You excited to have him back with the Bucks? 100%. So I, I grew up in that area, and I was a fan when they had the orange uniforms and when they used to have losing records year after year. You know, when Tony Dungy came on, he built a championship team. John Gruden took him over the hump, and they won the Super Bowl. But it's been rough sledding uh, throughout last decade until Tom came, and that was a huge thing. And I think – I think you know, he won the Super Bowl the first year, which was incredible. And if you look back at last year, I think he viewed it as probably his last year. But think about it. Had they beat the Rams, they would have probably beat the 49ers and the Bengals. I really believe that. I think they would have won back-to-back. Back. And they were banged up. And yet he had one of the best years, not only of his career, but of really any yeah, quarterback. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. And so I think it was kind of the natural end of the career. But then I think he started thinking, you know, we should have won the Super Bowl. We can do it. If we get healthy, we add some stuff. So I was thrilled when it happened. I was sad when, when um, they, they lost. I was sad when he retired. Uh, but, you know, he, he's the best uh, football player of all time. And he's the best, probably the best team sport player of all times. I never thought I would see someone better than Michael Jordan. But if you think about it, with what Brady's been able to do by winning all those Super Bowls and to perform that way at that age, and, and football's tough. I mean, like, this is a tough sport. He's really head and shoulders above everybody. People often see you as kind of this political gladiator. You're out there doing stuff. You're out there taking like 60 minutes to the cleaners. And, you know, every day it's sort of relentless. What do you do to unwind that people might not know about? Chase my kids around. So I've got a five-year-old daughter, a four-year-old son, a two-year-old daughter. My two oldest, they love sports. My son loves golf and baseball. They love to swim. And so if I'm home on the weekend, I'm not really resting. I'm not really getting any rest. But it's like we're doing things. And it's probably been – you can look at your life before you were a parent, after a parent. There's a clear divide. And so, you know, we're very fortunate. We're the youngest – family that's been in this governor's mansion since the 1800s and i'm i think i'm still the youngest governor in the country right now but we haven't had young kids like this to have a, a big young family here so it's interesting people see me out there doing this and then if they were only here seeing me like chase them around there and doing all this stuff but that's There's what some, we like, do baseball gear out front that's that right I saw. Oh, yeah, yeah no we set them right up in front of the governor's mansion they'll hit off the tee and then we'll pick up the balls and then we'll do that and so it's so it's a lot of fun you can pick one or both of these questions what is the best book you've read in the last year? And what is a guilty pleasure TV show that you like to binge? You know, it's interesting. I mean, um, I started watching Yellowstone uh, over, the, um, over the Christmas holiday. And I, think, and I think it's a good show. Part of it, I mean, Montana is beautiful. I'm just thinking, like, my wife's watching that. She's like, oh, man, we need to go to Montana. So that's fun um, for that. But, um, you know, the, what I try to do in terms of reading books is, you know, I try to just go back and read some of the things that are, that are really epic in history. I mean, I know there's new books that come out. And I read, I read Molly Hemingway did a good job on the election. And there's some other good ones I've read. Um, but, you know, you can pick up something like The Art of War. You can read that in one sitting. I mean, it's a pretty small thing. You know, you can read some of these things that, that have really been, and there's a lot of wisdom in there. And so I go back and, and I will do that. And, um, you know, I'm, I read, the, I read, I'll read some federalist essays. I'll do things like that because I think it gets your mind going in a very sharp way. And, um, and so you really are a constitutionalist nerd, aren't you? He's like, I just want to kick back and read the federalist papers. Well, it's, it's timely. And I think if you look at how they uh, uh, dealt with some of these issues, you find out Human nature has not changed, okay? These are perennial issues about self-government, about liberty, and as we see these different storms in our time, uh, the underlying principles uh, that they articulated are just as applicable 
today uh, as they were then. Yes, the, the, the window dressing looks a little bit different because society's changed, uh, but, but those insights are very strong. Last, certainly not least, you mentioned her earlier, the First Lady, a scare with breast cancer, some really exciting news in the last few weeks. How is she? How has this been for your family? So she's officially cancer-free. Uh, now, she's still got to go through some of the radiation and stuff, but that's much easier than the chemotherapy was. And so she's doing really well. She's responding really well. And But I think what it just shows for all the women out there, you know, when this, when you get that diagnosis, it's very, very scary because, you know, your life, you know, theoretically is hanging in the balance. But I can tell you this, you will, you have a great chance to beat this. Hang in there, fight the fight. They do great things nowadays in terms of the medical, and I think she's an example of that, um, that, that you can get through this. And so I'm really proud of how she's handled it. It is not easy dealing with in any time. But to have three little kids and then be in the public eye like she is, um, you know, it, it really was um, uh, it really was a difficult uh, time. But but she's handled it well, and uh, she will be back full strength very very soon. So stay tuned, Governor. Thanks for inviting me into your state and into your home. This was really cool. Looking forward to chatting again. Really appreciate it. All right, thanks so much, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, on the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back with an abbreviated home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. We are in Florida, the capital city here in this state, Tallahassee. We just wrapped up that lengthy and wide-ranging interview with the governor here, Ron DeSantis, a Republican. And we just sat at his desk for more than half an hour. And I was very pleased to bring you really an array of questions and answers from someone that we've talked about so much here on the show. Finally got a chance to spend some time with him. And I hope that you found that interview elucidating, illuminating, informative, and maybe entertaining at times. I really enjoyed it, and if you missed any of it, you can go get it on the free podcast. The entire show, every day, on demand, totally free, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we don't have a ton of time here at the end of the show because we went so long with the governor, who is very generous with his time today, but I do want to bring in Curious Christine here in the home stretch because she has been dying to ask all sorts of questions about today and this meeting. So, Christine, what are you most curious about now that you've heard the interview? Um, did you give him my my new Twitter handle? You know, it slipped my mind at Cookies Jar 1988. I probably should maybe I should like write a little note and have left it on his desk and he could immediately follow you. <laughs> I have to say, guy. That interview was unbelievable. You did, and you know me, I'm not one to often give many, many compliments, but you did such an amazing job, and he is such an impressive governor, and you could tell he means business. Now, were you nervous uh, when he was walking in? Did you did you feel pressure, or did you just think, okay, I mean, I'm Guy Benson. Here I go. Um, I Definitely a little bit of nervous energy. I'd done my preparation. I thought a lot about the interview on the plane and the flight down here yesterday. And, yeah, it's, I mean, the fact that the governor's invited you to his house to chat for 30 minutes about basically anything you want to. It's going to be on national radio. I wanted to do a good job. As I've mentioned now a few times, we talk about him, his policies, his controversies, his enemies a lot on this show. 
We've never had him on. I've only met him once before very briefly. This was obviously a much longer opportunity to sit with him. And actually tonight I'll be at a dinner off the record with him and a number of other people from the media, right-leaning folks. So we can maybe touch on that tomorrow, although the substance of the conversation tonight will be off the record as opposed to what we just all heard, which was on the record with Governor DeSantis. Not too nervous. He did walk in and shake my hand, and he looked around. He's like, are you just by yourself? You're like a one-man band in your equipment? And I said, yeah, it's just me. And he was expecting a producer. I had to explain, yeah, she's in New York. It's probably for the best. That's another thing. I mean, don't you think it would have it been great if I was there just to get to – you think he would have chilled with me for a little bit, hung out? Talk, I'm not sure he does shop? a lot of chilling, period. Like, he is scheduled chock-a-block. And he had an event right before our interview. There was a press conference. He had people waiting for him when he left. He's got this dinner tonight. And I bet a few other things in between. He is no nonsense. It is just go, go, go with Governor DeSantis here in Florida. We got a little bit of a taste of that here on the program today. Back tomorrow from Tallahassee. No DeSantis on the show tomorrow, but we'll have a great one as usual. Same time, same place. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you then. It is The Guy Benson Show. Have a great night. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.